As I said earlier, we're going to transition today from the prophet Elijah that we've been talking about for the last several weeks to his successor, a man named Elisha. And we're going to look at the call of Elisha to his life of service to God. And what I want us to particularly notice today is that what God was calling Elisha to was pretty extreme. But if Elisha could have seen in advance what he was being offered, he would have taken that deal over a thousand times over. See, Elisha had a good life, but God was calling him to something greater. Now, you and I are offered the same thing. God has a plan for our life, <clears throat> a plan that's beyond anything that we have ever could ask for or imagine. But it costs us something. In fact, it will cost you everything. If you're not a Christian or never fully committed your life to Jesus Christ, today's a great day to be here because you will see what's being offered and what's being asked of you. And if you are a Christ follower, it's good to think through these things again because the decision to follow Jesus is something that we must keep renewing day after day. And what we're going to see today is that following Jesus means that we must abandon our entire lives to him. A lot of people get interested in God because it's something, because of something that they think God can add to their lives, something they're missing. God can give us peace. God can help us when we're in trouble. God can comfort us when we're worried. God can provide a stable foundation for our family. He can give us the assurance that when we die, we'll go to heaven. And all of those things are great. They're valid reasons to follow Christ. But we don't come to Jesus to get services from him. Those things only make us realize that he needs to be the center of our life. Think of it like this. In the year 1532, the astronomer Nicholas Copernicus challenged the long-held belief that the earth was the center of the universe. People saw how the sun came up and moved seemingly through the sky and just assumed that the earth was the center of all things. We each need that kind of revolution in our own souls. Most of us view the world me-centrically. For many of us, we don't, uh, when we do decide to follow Jesus, it's because we think that he can add something of value to our life. And so in our list of priorities, Jesus ranks right up there, like second or third or tenth in our life. We think we are following Jesus, but in actuality, we've invited him to follow us. And watch how God calls Elisha. God told Elijah the prophet that he would raise up another prophet who would come after him, and it's in 1 Kings chapter 19. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak around his shoulders and then walked away. Now the first thing we notice, even in this, uh, in this passage, is that Elisha was rich. How do I know that? Well, he has 24 pairs of oxen, or 24 oxen, 12 pairs. Now think of oxen like cars. A middle-class family in that day was, was very fortunate to have one ox. And here's Elisha with 24 of them. And notice that it says he was in line behind the 12th set, but they were all his. So what does that mean? It means he had servants 
who were pulling the others. He lived in a place called Abel Mehola, which in English would be translated the Dancing Meadow. And this is an area that was known as the breadbasket of Israel, a very fertile land along the Jordan River. Elisha was rich, he had great land, he had servants, he had lots of oxen, but maybe something in him was restless and unfulfilled. And I wonder if sometimes he didn't watch his servants out there plowing and say, is this all there is to life? Do this for a few years and then die and pass it on to my son and be forgotten? Is this all there is? Or is there something greater? Have you ever felt that way? Is this all there is to life? What I'm doing day in and day out, I'm going to work, I'm coming home, going to work, coming home. Is this all there is? Elijah then walks up to him without a word and throws his cloak around him, which admittedly is a little weird. Try that at the mall today and you'll probably get arrested. <laughs> but in those days, the cloak was a symbol of your vocation, your authority. So what's happening here is that the prophetic calling of Elijah is being offered to Elisha. Pretty exciting stuff. Elijah, if you recall, was a wanted man. He had been living on the run. God had defeated him through a, a, a widow that, that took him in for a while and some ravens out under a tree. And, and so what we see here is Elisha being called from a life of luxury to a life of poverty and danger. Watch how he responds in verse 20. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, first let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I've done to you. Verse 21, so Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople and they all ate, and then he went with Elijah as his assistant. Now Elisha takes the vow of poverty, as it were. He accepts the mantle of responsibility, and then he kills all of his oxen and uses them to feed the community. One ox would typically feed a family of five for about a year and a half. So 24 oxen, this would have been an epic feast. And this is incidentally where the vision for Old Country Buffet and Golden Corral was born, just so you know. <clears throat> but I want you to notice what also is in this part of the story. Elisha burns his plow. For him, there was no turning back to the life he knew. Look at verse 21. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. He went from being the CEO of his own agribusiness to being Elijah's assistant. Now, three things characterize Elisha's response, and believe it or not, this is where the invitation to something greater begins. First, the path to something greater goes through the valley of surrender and sacrifice and service. And I want to look at those words one at a time. Surrender, burning his plow, meant irrevocably handing in his resignation as CEO of Elisha Farms. He has literally cooked his old way of life, and he's had it for dinner. Elijah was his master now, and there was no plan B. There was nothing to fall back on. Sacrifice, what had been his foundation and his delight and his treasure source was now the means by which he would bless others. And then service, 
Think about how much his life changed in one day. He went from being the top guy to being the unpaid intern. Imagine, too, that what this was like for Eli- Elisha's parents. So was, what, what does your son do? <laughs> well, he makes Elijah's breakfast, he cleans up after him, and he keeps his calendar. Um, by the way, this was the case for 18 years. For 18 years, Elisha is a servant doing menial tasks for Elijah. Now, whenever God calls people in the Bible, they most always go through a time of humbling. It was true of Moses, it was true of David, and many others. Being humbled is no fun, I guarantee you. But that time is crucial. And if we don't excel in the areas in where God has assigned us to be a servant, we're never gonna be a good employee, we're never gonna be a good student, or a good son, or a good daughter, or even a good door holder. We'll never make a good profit either. Why? Because in God's kingdom, the way up is the, starts here. It's the way down. Starts with being a servant. We complain a lot in our culture today, don't we? We complain about our careers. God, why don't uh, other people recognize all the talents that I have? Why haven't I been given those opportunities uh, like someone else? The better question is, are we being faithful? If we can't be faithful as a servant, we'll never make it as a prophet. Quit worrying about where God has placed you and worry instead about being faithful in the places where God puts you. Honor God with your heart in the little things and in due time, Scripture says, God will lift you up. See, when God calls people, those three words uh, characterize our lives. Surrender, sacrifice, and service. Is that what you signed up for when you became a Christ follower? Is that what you thought you were getting into when you became a Christian? See, believe it or not, Jesus takes it up another level. In Mark's gospel, the eighth chapter, we read, then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you want to be my followers, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. It means total abandonment to the way of God. Now note that Jesus did not say, deny your money. Deny any pleasures in life. Deny ice cream. No, didn't say any of those things. He didn't even tell them to deny sin. He told them to what? Deny themselves. Deny yourself. Say no to all that you want out of life so that you can say yes to what God wants from you. Take up your cross is a phrase that gets thrown, a lot, thrown around a lot. Yeah, but I want you to think about the fact that crosses in Jesus' day were instruments of torture. In, in our day, crosses are these sentimental symbols of our faith. Sometimes they're pieces of jewelry we wear around our necks. But for the first century audience, crosses were symbols of Roman racism and oppression. They evoked horror in the hearts and in the minds of all who saw them, condemned people were hung on crosses in shame, totally dominated by the will of another person. You see, sometimes in our use of this symbol, the cross, we lose its horror. Imagine that you went into somebody's house, a neighbor's house, who just moved in the, down the block, and you notice that their decorating motif is some instrument of torture. Some instrument of torture. And you would be asking yourself, 
Are these the kind of people I want to be friends with? (laughs) Do I want my kids playing with their kids? And yet this is the image that Jesus used and his disciples told him he was crazy. And they're saying, Jesus can't start a movement talking about uh, strapping on a cross and coming and following you. People want self-empowerment. They want upward mobility. That's the stuff you need to give them. But Jesus didn't hold back, and he said, finding me is finding everything you've ever searched for. But you have to be willing to abandon everything else to follow me. And by the way, this was not just for an elite few that he was speaking. At the beginning of verse 34, we're we're told that he called the crowd to him with his disciples. He's not just speaking to the 12 disciples, but to everyone. So what does it mean to be all in? Jesus is asking them to be all in. What does that mean for us? To be all in for Jesus Christ. What does total commitment look like? How about practicing the spiritual disciplines like prayer and worship and reading your Bible regularly and tithing your income? Remember, all in means it's all or nothing. We can't come to God with conditions, hedging our bets along the way. The point is not that God has called us to resign our job like Elisha, not to give away all our money. The point is that there's nothing in our life that's off limits to God when we're all in. No area of our life in which we say, God, I'll obey you in this part of my life, but not with this part. Instead, our life takes on the flavor of sacrifice and service and surrender. I can't tell you exactly what God will have you do specifically with your life. He leads some of us into ministry and others to be bankers. He leads some of us to take care of foster kids and others to serve in a jail ministry. God calls some people to serve in student ministry and others to reach their coworkers or lead a small group. I can't tell you specifically what it will be for you, but I can assure you that following Jesus means that your life will take on an air of sacrifice and service and surrender if you're all in. Think of the disciples. Every single one of them was put to death for the cause of Christ. Doubting Thomas was pierced with a pine spear and tortured with red-hot plates and burned alive in India. In AD 54, the proconsul of Heropolis had Philip tortured and crucified because his wife converted to Christianity. Matthew was stabbed in the back in Ethiopia. James was thrown off the southeast pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, and miraculously he survived the hundred-foot fall, but then was clubbed to death by the mob. Simon the Zealot was crucified in Syria in AD 74. Peter, of course, was crucified upside down at his own request. The only disciple who did not die a martyr's death was John, and that's only because he survived his execution. When a cauldron of boiling oil could not kill him, the emperor Diocletian exiled him to the island of Patmos. Now, admittedly, these were a special class of people. Even the apostle Paul said so. But do you think that really following Jesus for them was things like pain and suffering, and for us it's going to be flowers and roses and and God bless you? Hardly. Verse 34, then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any one of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Hear the humility in that statement. 
I often think about what it's going to be like when we see Jesus in heaven one day, the Savior who hung on a cross, when we meet up with those disciples who all suffered for their faith, and we say, yeah, it was, it was pretty rough for me too, you know. I attended church at least once or twice a month, depending on the kids' sports schedules and time at the lake. It was really rough. I think we all have to be asking ourselves the question, am I really following Jesus? Or am I simply using him to complete a self-centered life, to give me my best life now? James 1.27 says, true religion is giving yourself away for those who can't pay you back. He says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So the big picture is, where are you doing that? Are you following Jesus? Is your life characterized by surrender and sacrifice and service? Or are you using Jesus to complete a life that's focused completely on yourself? Do you occasionally tip him when you come to church? Or are you committed to tithing your income? I like the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he says, when Christ calls a person, he bids him to come and die. The path to something greater always begins in the valley of surrender and sacrifice and service because Jesus Christ calls us to be all in. Secondly, the possibilities of something greater are realized only through bold acts of faith. See, verse 21 tells us that Elisha burned the plow. Then he went with Elijah as his servant. Elijah left, Elisha had to chase after him, and that was total abandonment. All or nothing. I love Mark Batterson's story in his book entitled All In. Mark writes, on February 19th, 1519, the Spanish explorer Hernan Cortez set sail for Mexico with an entourage of 11 ships, 13 horses, 110 sailors, and 553 soldiers. The indigenous population upon his arrival was approximately 5 million. From a purely mathematical standpoint, the odds were stacked against him by a ratio of 7,541 to 1. And two previous expeditions had failed to even establish a settlement in the New World, and yet Cortez conquered much of the South American continent. And what Cortez is reported to have done after landing is an epic tale of mythic proportions. He issued an order to burn the ships. As his crew watched their fleet of ships burn and sink, they came to terms with the fact that retreat was not an option. Now, I realize that the murdering and pillaging that Cortez did is morally repugnant to most people today, but if we could just compartmentalize that for a moment, there is a lesson to be learned from what he did. Nine times out of ten, failure is resorting to plan B because plan A gets too risky too costly, and too difficult. And that's why most people today are living their plan B. Most of us are living our plan B. Why? Because we haven't burned the ships. Plan A, people don't have a plan B. It's plan A or bust. They would rather crash and burn doing what God has called them to do than succeed at anything else. Now, some of us need to learn that lesson of how to act boldly in faith. You know, God has called you to, to learn. God has called you to grow. So go ahead, sign up for a 
disciple Bible study class or a small group. Make it a priority. Maybe God is calling you to get involved in one of our many outreach ministries, to start a new one, to reach the poor or the hungry or those in prison. Maybe God is calling you to be more deeply involved with our justice team and help rescue children and youth through the foster care system in this community. Maybe your ministry is just to walk across the street and share your faith with a neighbor. But the point is this, quit messing around with what God is saying to you and act boldly. You see, there's always risk and involved in obeying God and not taking those risks. The Bible calls wicked behavior. So take the risk and obey the impulse that God is putting in your spirit. Let me fast forward um, these last couple of minutes in, uh, to Elisha's life of 18 years. He's been Elijah's servant. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse, beginning with verse 8, it says, Then Elijah folded his cloak together and struck the water with it. The river divided, and the two of them went across on dry ground. When they came to the other side, Elijah and Elisha said to Elisha, um, Tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken away. And Elisha replied, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. You've asked a difficult, a difficult thing, Elijah replied. If you see me when I am taken from you, then you will get your request. But if not, then you won't. And as they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, I see the chariots and the charioteers of Israel, as if Elijah hadn't seen them already. And as they disappeared from sight, Elisha tore his clothes in distress. And Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak, which had fallen where he was taken up. And then Elisha returned to the bank of the Jordan River, and he struck the water with Elisha's cloak and cried out, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And the river divided. And Elisha went across. So here's Elisha and he, with Elijah's cloak in his hand, and he's like, well, <laughs> well here goes. <laughs> Let's give it a try. And he slaps the water with Elijah's cloak the way Elijah did, and when he does, the waters draw up on either side like a secret passageway, and he walks across. So in, the words, in other words, Elisha got what he asked for. In fact, if you count up the number of miracles during the course of Elijah's life, it totals 14. If you count the number of miracles during Elisha's life, it's 28. He got the double anointing because he did not hold anything back. The great blessings of our faith come when we make bold moves of faith. For many of us, our lives could be so much more than they are today. We are living a good life. We're a decent person. We're making money. But you know what? We're not making an eternal difference for anybody. We could have an eternally significant life, but we have to first act boldly and we have to burn the ships. Think about what your life could be. It's not Elijah's cloak being offered to you today. It is the power and the spirit of Jesus Christ. He said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go in my name. You have the authority in Jesus' name to set captives free, starting with your own family, if you accept it. And moving out from there to your neighbors and to your friend and to your community. Jesus said, greater works than I've done, you will do. He didn't mean greater in power. He meant greater works uh, in number. 
Double the number. Elijah did 14, Elisha 28. We have the cloak of authority to multiply Jesus' works among people in our community. And then in closing, just the third, quickly, the power to pursue something greater is found in a heavenly vision. Elisha saw a vision of Elijah being taken up into heaven. It was a terrifying vision of something like a tornado. Even Elijah's chariot's on fire, the horses are on fire. It was a vision that represented God's judgment, which is why Elisha tore his clothes when he saw it in the Bible. When they see this kind of thing, usually people die. When God descended on Mount Sinai in the giving of the Ten Commandments, there was fire and tornadoes, and God had to put a perimeter around the base of the mountain and said, warn the people, be careful, don't let them go up the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who does will certainly be put to death. But here, Elisha sees Elijah lifted up rather than being destroyed. And in that moment, he saw saw a prefiguring of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died, there was lightning and thunder. The fire of God's justice tore through his body on the cross. God's justice was against our sin. His righteousness was poured out for us in the judgment given to Jesus. But like Elisha, we saw someone ascend into heaven alive, and what we saw in Jesus is even greater than what Elisha saw. We saw Jesus rise from the dead and ascend to God's right hand, and he lives to make intercession for us. Elisha saw the judgment of God, and he realized he was safe. And this vision became the sustaining vision to everything, um, to leave everything, to sacrifice everything, to... And to, and to endure persecution to faithfully do what God had called him to do. And my goal today is simply to challenge you to act boldly. God has something greater for you in your life. Many of you will never receive it because you won't follow the path to surrender and sacrifice and service. And you won't act boldly. So you'll never know what God can do in your life. This is the path of the cross It leads to an enduring legacy. What does faithfulness look like for you? The point of our life is to be faithful. And when we're not, God leaves us right where we are. But he doesn't ever give us that next step. We never move to something greater. So whatever God is calling you to do today, I challenge you to obey God fully. And if you've never become a Christian you are, uh, and are ready to uh, surrender your life to Jesus Christ today, I invite you to do that before another minute passes. Or maybe you've assumed that you are a Christian, but you've never really, really laid it all down. I invite you today to be all in. To be all in. Let's pray. God, just as you called your servant Elisha so long ago, you call each of us to speak and to act on your behalf in our world today. Forgive us when we are hesitant to follow, when we question your call, when we make excuses for our abilities, when we complain about our lack of time or we hoard our resources. God, give us courage to step out in faith and to go where you send us without hesitation, without fear, trusting that your presence will always go with us and that you will provide everything we need. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.